Welcome to the Evolution 2.0 podcast, where we explore the intersection of art, technology, business, biology, and spirituality. Here, you'll discover new trends in evolution that are changing the way we think about everything. This is your host, Perry Marshall, author of Evolution 2.0, 80-20 Sales and Marketing, and guides to Ethernet, Google, and Facebook. I'm founder of the Evolution 2.0 Prize, a quest for the missing link between earth science, the information age, and life itself. Let's join the conversation now. So I'm here to talk to you about a dilemma. And, and here's the dilemma. I think, uh, so you have 95% of the world and you got 5% of the world. The U.S. military has been tracking the education level of its r- recruits since time immemorial. And back in World War II, the average soldier had an education level of 8th or ninth grade. And now it's 5th grade. And I'm going to guess with AI doing most of your stuff for you 10 years from now, it's going to be 3rd grade. And I think that 95% of the world is going to be a bunch of third graders. And uh, in the biggest sense of things, that's kind of a problem. It also means that if you're going to be in the 5% that runs the world, you need to be in grad school. And I don't mean university, formal, PhD, grad school. This is grad school. You understand what I'm saying? This is definitely the grad school. This is postdoc. I think that when you're in a world where the technology can do so many things for you, there's really two directions that you can go. You can use it as an excuse to be lazy and to be conveyed on a little pod with a screen in front of your face and blue drinks fed into your mouth, and uh, little robots to pick you up when, they, when you fall off of your pod and you can't get up because you haven't walked in six months. You can veer in that direction, or you can commit yourself to solving the biggest problems that you know how to solve, and even solving problems that are way bigger than you know how to solve, but you kind of suspect that maybe you could solve if you really, 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 really put your mind to it. My first entrepreneurial adventure was when I was 14. I built a pair of speakers in shop class, and I ran an ad in a classified newspaper, and somebody came and bought them, and that was my first dollar as an entrepreneur. Uh, and then in, when I got into my 20s, I was an Amway pink Kool-Aid drinker for about six or seven years. The reason that I drank the Kool-Aid was I was absolutely terrified of waking up at age 45 being chained to some stupid job that I couldn't get rid of because I needed the health insurance. And I was terrified of waking up every morning and having my chain jerked and having to go do whatever somebody else thinks is important because I really had a, I had a very strong sense There's other stuff you're going to think is way more important than that. And you're not going to be doing it if you don't have some autonomy in the world. And that's the real reason I'm an entrepreneur. 
And so there's a whole story that I don't really have time for today, but 19 years ago, I went down a rabbit hole that is now known as Evolution 2.0, which is a book. It's a $10 million prize for the origin of the genetic code. It's uh, it's also spun off into a cancer research organization called reversingcancer.org. And I spend about a third of my life as a effectively functioning as a scientist. My third peer-reviewed scientific paper will come out in the next couple months. And there's some things that I'm really interested in. So about middle of January, I got an email from two scientists that I'm good friends with. One of them's from Oxford, one of them's from UCLA. And they said, Perry, we have a special issue of progress in biophysics and molecular biology, which... I have written something for before. I'm kind of, I'm in their peer review circle, let's put it that way. And uh, they said, we're doing a special issue on quantum biology. Would you like to contribute a paper? It's due May 1st. Sorry, April 1st. And I said, yes. Now, I did not say yes because I knew what to write. I said yes because I didn't. I'm an electrical engineer, and all electrical engineers take quantum physics in college. It's just a standard class. And I took it, it was probably in 1991. The professor was terrible. He just wrote equations on the board and babbled. And I learned how to push the numbers around and answer the questions on the tests, but I never felt like I understood what it meant. And he never tried to explain what it meant. And then for the next 30 years, because everybody's heard about quantum physics and everybody's seen a Joe Dispenza video or something, and everybody kind of hears about this stuff and it's very fluffy. And whether it was in a, you know, in a technical, formal sense or whether it was just in the pop culture, I always felt like someday I had to figure out what I think about this and figure out like what is this all about. And it's kind of, you could almost say it's like on the B part of my bucket list for a long time. Well, all of a sudden, with nine weeks notice, would you like to write a peer-reviewed scientific paper about quantum biology? That's not very long. My first paper took a year to write. I said yes. Like, well, I guess I'm doing this now. And I just moved it to the front of my priority list, and I spent about the first two hours, the first two quality hours of every day after I did my Renaissance time, which is like the meditation and focus time that I think everybody should do, front burner. And I turn in the paper one hour before it was due. It was due midnight, UK time, April 1st, and I got it in at 11 o'clock, which is 5 o'clock US Central time. So, well, first of all, why am I telling you this? Because I feel like what I've really done for the first 20 years of my career as an author and a guru and a, you know, some of you guys kind of know what I do. I've spent the first 20 years teaching entrepreneurs to think like scientists. Scientific advertising. The columns in your Google account that say how many conversions you got and, you know, and Facebook and, and all that kind of stuff. 
And there's an incredible value to doing that because then you don't get shafted, right? You know what's actually going on. And one of the, the highest compliments I get sometimes is like, well, you know, I read your Google book in like 2011 and I did that for a couple years and then I stopped doing Google, but everything I learned, it worked on LinkedIn and it worked on Instagram and it worked because it's like universal principles. Like, yes, it looked like I was trying to teach you Google ads, but I was really trying to teach you to do scientific advertising from 1918, except 10,000 times faster because we're on the internet and we're not... Uh, doing newspaper ads in Ohio in the 1800s. And I feel like now where I'm at, I'm certainly not in any sense leaving the entrepreneurs behind, but now I'm in a position of teaching the scientists to think like entrepreneurs. Because I've gone very deep down some rabbit holes in science, and I, I have made a very interesting observation. Most scientists, most science most papers that get published, most professors, most universities are just rearranging the deck chairs. And I have consulted in 300 industries at least, and I have never seen an industry where there's less freedom of speech, more pettiness, and more high school click than professional science. Chiropractors don't really have this problem, and bowling alleys don't have this problem, and Facebook managers don't have this problem, but scientists do. But being the kind of person I am, I I was saying to Rodrigo yesterday, I said, Rodrigo, you're a consultant, you work with CEOs, you meet all kinds of interesting people, true or false? You can talk to almost anybody about almost anything for five minutes and you can tell whether they know what they're talking about or whether they're full of shit. True or false? He's like, yes. And then he goes on to explain, yeah, the the person that really knows what they're talking about, they'll say, well, when you take my entire profession, you shake it down, it really comes down to these three things. And it'll be very logical and very coherent and very consistent. And he goes, the ones that don't know what they're talking about, they'll just spiral into a bunch of jargon. So here's what I've noticed about scientists that don't just spiral into a bunch of jargon that actually think originally. About 90% of them have figured out some level of financial independence by some sometimes very weird mechanism. Sometimes it's they came from a wealthy family or something like that. Sometimes it's because their funding source believed in them, even though nobody else did, so they just gave them money anyway. Sometimes it's because they had some kind of outside income. But literally about 95% of the time, I came to the conclusion that there is no independence of thinking without independence of money. One of my friends who does brilliant, like crazy brilliant scientific work, the first time I met him, we did a podcast, and after the podcast, we were just chatting. I never met him before, and he goes, when my grad students are writing grant requests, I tell them, 
to government agencies, don't let on that we're doing anything revolutionary or you'll never get a dime. Give Homer Simpson the donuts and then we'll figure out the other stuff like in the back closet. And this is, this is really true. And so there needs to be entrepreneurial thinking. And see, I've spent a lot of time in evolutionary biology and you could just about say that censorship, cancel culture, and polarization might as well have been invented there and then the rest of the world learned how to do it in the age of social media. And what I and some other people are really trying to do is completely reverse that. And it's actually working. Nobody needs to tell you that with all of the fabulous advances of AI and all the things that it can do. I mean, I'm doing an AI seminar in five weeks. I think it's great. But I'm also, I'm also looking at the dark side. Like, you, you have to hold both in your arms. Like you have to be able to deal with paradox and, and the tension between the good and the bad, I think, if you're ever going to really be effective with it. And so I'd like to talk to you a little bit, uh, first of all, about what AI is and what AI is not. I'm literally going to give you about a five-minute crash course in quantum physics. Richard Feynman, very famous physicist who wrote a book called Surely You're Joking, Mr. Feynman, he said, the double slit experiment in quantum mechanics pretty much encapsulates the entire mystery. So I'm going to explain, most of you have probably seen this somewhere, but I'm going to explain to you, and let me give you the Perry version. And the Perry version is, I got a green source of light like a laser, and it's shining, I have a screen over here that's going to pick up the light, and I have an obstacle here with a slit and a slit, just like that. And what happens is when you shine light through this slit and this slit, it reemerges from the slits just like if you drop two rocks into a pond, and the ripples went out from the two rocks, and then they interfere with each other as the ripples come together. So, you know, ripples in a pond do this, right? And on the screen, you get an interference pattern of two light waves that looks like this. And 200 years ago, somebody did this experiment, and they go, oh, light is a wave. But then 100 years ago, somebody added a little twist. And they said, well, maybe it's not a wave. They pointed a particle detector, which just think of it as a little video camera. They pointed at one slit, and as soon as they did that, they no longer got a wave pattern. They got dots. And the electron suddenly became a particle instead of a wave. Just because 
you pointed at a camera at one slit to see which one it went through. And when you wanted to know which one it went through, then it only went through one or the other, and it went through as a particle instead of a wave. Now get this. If you unplug the particle detector, it goes back to being a wave. So this is really weird. But apparently, it is neither a particle or a wave until you inquire about what it is. And let's say you have three or four or five particle detectors, however many you want, as soon as there's one that could tell you whether it's a particle or a wave, it'll suddenly become a particle. So apparently, I don't know if it's the electron knows, or the universe knows, or the quantum field knows, or the experiment as a whole knows, but, but it knows not, not only whether you know or could, it even operates on whether you could know. This is really weird. This turns a whole bunch of things just completely upside down. What we can say is that nobody knows how to make this happen without the involvement of a conscious observer. So in the paper that I wrote, what I said was, this is actually a different version of the same problem that a bunch of other people have been asking for 100 years in a different field. Now, let me just talk about good thinking is when somebody can do a bunch of spreadsheets and give you a nice answer. Great thinking is when a person like Isaac Newton says, Hey, you know that thing that makes an apple fall out of a tree? That's the same thing that makes the moon fall around the earth in a circle. There's not gravity and schmavity, there's gravity. That's how geniuses think. They connect dots and they say, this is the same as this, which is the same as this, which is the same as this. So for example... When I was a young marketing pup, and I'm going to Dan Kennedy's seminars, and he's explaining how infomercials went from $650 media budget, beta cam in the back of a hotel room while a guy sells real estate thing, and we put it on public access TV, and then all of a sudden, 10 years later, it cost $75,000 to put an infomercial in a can. I listened to that story. I heard that story. He's, he's explaining how media gets more and more expensive. I was like, Google Ads is that. It's infomercials. It's just micro-infomercials. Okay, maybe it's not going to be $75,000, but it's going to be $7,500, or it's going to be $750, and the barrier to entry will be way higher than it was in the beginning. So you better get in now. And that's what I taught my students, because this is really the same as that. It's not two different things. It's one thing. It's media, people responding to media, and the bid price of the media. So what's the question 
that I equated this to. Well, in biology, there's this question, like deep, deep, deep down under, underneath everything, there's this really basic question. How does a living thing turn disorder into order? Because I thought the way the world's supposed to run is order turns into disorder. My car gets rusty and the wheels fall off and my roof has to be replaced. And when you pop toast out of the toaster, it always gets colder, not hotter. In science, they call this entropy. How is it that living things reverse entropy? Erwin Schrödinger, famous physicist, said this in 1943. He called it negative entropy. You know what? Nobody knows how that works. And anybody that pretends they know how that works is lying to you. Like, in other words, right at the, at the center of life is this big giant mystery, no matter how anybody wants to camouflage it. Elephant in the room is... Nobody knows. And um, one bacterium can do more programming in 12 minutes than a team of Google engineers can do in 12 weeks. And the bacteria that, you know, you fight an infection and your immune system are all orders of magnitude smarter than any of our brains. Way smarter so what is that sm- what, what that smart all about? What I said in my, in my paper was, here's a cell, and you know it's floating around. It acts on its environment. How does it do that? So if a virus comes along and it, it says, "I don't like this virus, it'll identify it and it'll cut it into little pieces and spit it out. And it know, like it knows what that thing is. I said, whatever this is, it's actually the same as what's going on when a human does a double slit experiment. A cell is an observer too. And this, with you, know, you doing this little experiment, which you can literally do on your tabletop, These are not two different things. These are one thing. And I don't know what makes a cell an observer, but it is. And and so I started digging and digging, and I found out something very interesting. I did not have any trouble finding discussions online of, well, is there a way to set it up so a dog, a cat, a goldfish, a mouse, or an amoeba switches the particle to a wave or the wave to a particle. I found easily found people t- discussing whether this is, can be done or not. I could not find one single experiment in the last 100 years that anybody's actually trying to f- find out. It's waiting to be done. So I said, I hypothesize that not only can a human cause 
a wave to become a particle, I think your dog can do it, your cat can do it, your goldfish can do it, your dragonfly can do it, and a cell can do it. And I found a very interesting experiment by a guy named Dean Radin. He put, he did this experiment where he said, I'm going to have particles and I'm going to have waves going through the little apparatus in the double slit experiment. I'm going to get two groups of people and I'm going to tell them, I want you to sit down and I want you to concentrate and I want you to wish for a particle. Can you get particles just by focusing your intent? And you got two groups of people. One was regular people and the other one was trained meditators. And the regular people couldn't do it, but the trained meditators could. And they did it 4.4 standard deviations away from normal. Which, any of you who do any statistics, which a lot of people, because this is a marketing room, there's, I bet, at least 25% of the people in this room are like 4.4 standard deviations. Like, that's a lot. Yeah. Like, five is considered breakthrough. So somebody should redo the experiment. I think you could redo the experiment with animals and plants and cells, and it would work every time. And so, and on Monday, oh, oh I, okay, I got, I got to back up and tell you a little story. So I only had nine weeks to try to figure all this out. So how are you going to do that? Well, I've picked up some tricks along the way. One of them is this. I've got a friend named Emerson Sparts, and he's kind of a marketing guy, but he made a whole bunch of money in cryptocurrency about five years ago, and he's in his early 30s. And so he's financially independent. He could do whatever he wants. Seems to be a theme in this talk. And so when he retired at age 32, he said, I want to just go learn about stuff. And so every couple months, he like picks some topic, like it could be neuroscience or it could be the environment or, you know, it could be whatever. And he'll just go down a rabbit hole. And he said, so I've done this a whole bunch of times in all kinds of different areas. And he said, I've noticed a pattern. So I go down the rabbit hole all right, I'm going to learn about neuroscience. So who are the neuroscientists and what are the best books and who are people listening to and who do people respect and who are the superstars? He says, I'll, so I'll spend about 20 hours like reading through all their stuff. And then I will stumble on somebody who teaches me more in one hour than the previous guys taught me in 20. And I've noticed a pattern. That person is always what I call an interdisciplinary explainer. This is a person who's into lots of stuff, and they go down lots of rabbit holes, and they're into bowling, and they're into macrame, and they're into kite surfing, and, and they're into chemistry, and, you know, they're in old television sets or whatever. And they have the ability to take one field of knowledge and explain it in plain English to people that know something, that don't know that, they, they know other things. 
It's the ability to go down the rabbit hole until you can simplify it. So you ex- explain it to like regular people. They could explain it to high school kids, and it'll make sense. Now, I think this, I got a story I want to tell you about that, but, but I, I think this, first of all, is a real key to what do we do about the dumbing down of the world and the fact that we got to all get smarter. Well, here's one that you can write in blood. And then one of the greatest skills you can possibly cultivate is the ability to wrap your head around a complex subject and work through it until you have made it simple enough to explain to your kids. That is not a trivial skill. That is a multi-million dollar, billion dollar skill. That is a skill that creates trillion dollar industries. One of the little tricks that I've learned is something that I call poor man's peer review. So what's peer review? Peer review is... um, It's a practice in science that you submit your scientific paper and then the editor distributes it to two or three or four other scientists. They take your name off of it. They can still figure out who you are, but anyway. They take your name off of it and they give it to anonymous people and then they review it and they criticize it and they say what's right and wrong about it. And then you go through rounds of fixing your errors, possibly talking to these anonymous people. And um, so that's what peer-reviewed science literature means. Well, when I, when I wrote my evolution book and my 80-20 book, what I knew was absolutely true about both of these books was you only get one chance to get this right. I can't release 80-20 sales and marketing with a whole bunch of blunders in it, and then come back a year later and say, you know, hey, everybody, I fixed this thing. It's a good book now. Now, it's got to be a, a good book the first time out. And most books, the day they go on sale, have only been read by maybe 12 people. Your wife, your mom, your business partner, your editor, and like one or two other people. And they all like you, and they're all too nice to tell you that you're a schmuck. And so there's a whole bunch of really mediocre books out there. So what I did was I would go on Fiverr, and I would hire people. And this also works on Upwork. You can do it wherever you want. But I was like, well, this is a marketing book, and I just found this guy on Fiverr who does these, like, YouTube things or these copywriting things or small business things. So I message him. Hey, I'll pay you 25 bucks to, or 50 bucks, pick a number, to read my book and answer six questions. And you'll get a surprising amount of uptake on this. And the questions are, the ones I like, what was your two favorite chapters, two least favorite chapters, was anything boring, confusing, offensive, would you pay $12.95 for this book? Would you recommend it to a friend? And then you just let him go. And you just hire maybe two or three at a time. And you shell out 50 bucks. And then you get feedback. And I keep revising the book. I found 
almost every feedback that comes back ends up changing something in the book. And it's like you are smoothing this thing out. Most books have invisible speed bumps all over the place. And by the way, this does not just apply to books. This could be sales pages. This could be videos. This could be anything you put out. And the best feedback you get is from people that are slightly off your target market. They're just sort of your market because they're the ones that go to sleep the fastest and are least interested. And they're the ones that are going to be most easily thrown off by a speed bump. And so you just keep rinse repeating, and what will happen is at the beginning, there's all these issues that come up. After you've fixed that stuff and straightened them out, and sometimes, like, every time I do this, I don't have any idea what you were talking about in chapter 13. It just made no sense whatsoever. And that ends up getting rubbished. But after you run this through 15, 20, 25 people, you'll have some English major that says, the only entrepreneur thing I've ever done in my world is a little bit of editing work here and there, but this was a fun book. I would never read a book like this, but I love this book. And that's what you do. So I did poor man's peer review with my science paper, and I went on Upwork and I hired experimental physicists. And I said, I'm writing a paper, and I need you to shoot holes in this thing. So here's what always happens. Uh, you hire seven of them. You, you find out that three or four of them are pretty much useless. They might be nice, and they might have good manners, but they don't really engage very well, and they don't really whatever. And then I chisel it down to three, and then I just basically I just duked it out with them for about two weeks until they understood what I was trying to say, and I was saying it in their language. Because I'm not a physicist. I am a marketing consultant who writes books about evolution and Facebook and Google and 80-20, and there's a spiritual book I'll talk about. Like, I don't speak that language perfectly, but I have to. And... Um, I think that's why the paper got accepted on Monday with no further revisions needed. And whatever it is that you need to go figure out, you need a system for chiseling it down to something that is so simple and so clear that nobody in your target audience can misunderstand it. I think simplifying is one of the million, billion, trillion dollar skills in the world. And if you accept the challenge, which is to be a member of this 5%, instead of being one of the humans that needs to be picked up by robots when you fall off your pod what you're really going to be doing, you're going to be making complicated things simple. Let's talk about this sort of cynical view that is very easy to have about humanity. I think it's great that we have washing machines, 
and computers and dishwashers and AI and all the world's information at your fingertips, I think it's great. But we also know there's always a dark side to everything. It can make people incredibly lazy. And I think there's a challenge that marketers need to accept in order to not just contribute to the demise of the world, and here's what it is. You need to serve people without pandering to people. Now, anybody who's ever had anything to do with the bizot market should know what I'm talking about. The bizot market mostly consists of fairies and unicorns, and they make it sound way easier than it is, and there's always something they don't tell you, and if you're actually serious about it, you end up on a Greyhound bus dropped off in the middle of the desert somewhere between Phoenix and Albuquerque, and you die of thirst on the ground. Right? How many of you have died between Phoenix and Albuquerque from some bizop thing that you were just sure they were telling you the whole story and they were not? I remember a conversation I had in one of Dan Kennedy's mastermind groups. There was a couple of guys, and they said, you know, they were bizop guys. And they said, we make a lot of money and we have a really great business, but I, I really can't stand my customers. They're a bunch of idiots. And Dan goes, I have a solution to that. I don't know that you're going to like the answer. They go, okay, what's the solution? I said, well, tomorrow send out an email, say, from now on, I'm not pandering to the idiots anymore. From now on, this is going to be a serious list with serious business advice and the weenies that want to do unicorns and fairies, uh, you can all go pound sand. And then you just raise the level of content, you raise the level of expectation, and you will like the customers that you have a year later. But the problem is you'll lose 90% of them, and your income will plummet. And most people who do this just kind of go back to the crack cocaine and go, well, I guess I'll just go back to hating my customers and making money. Now, I don't know what they did. Here's what I can tell you. After my Amway pink Kool-Aid days, I, I am physically unable to pander. I cannot physically do it. And I don't have the biggest list in the world or the biggest business in the world, but I love my customers. I think they are fabulous. And I, I feel like, no, th these are people I can grow old with. Because this is a great community. And Brian is exactly like that, right? Brian is going to tell you the truth, whether you like it or not, right? And then you have that kind of East Coast Jewish thing that kind of makes it good. <laughs> right, yeah, right, right. And so I think this is what we have to do. And look, the opportunity is. You know, whenever you can automate something, like, everybody talks about, oh, this is going to unemploy so many people. Well, we've been automating stuff for about 500 years now. And for 500 years, the sky is falling. 
Washing machines are going to put the washerwomen out of business. Okay, what is unemployment 4% or something? Three? And it's not going to employ everybody. You, you know what you need to notice? These technologies, not only do they employ people, they sort of have a tendency to enslave them. Nobody's getting unemployed. The thing you need to be careful about is being a slave. Hello, that video? That's a video about slavery. Like The artists figure this out way before the tech people do. Right? I mean, that video is like 10 years old, and they, they were probably writing the script 15 years ago. And some creative guy sitting by a brook with a notepad came up with that. And he saw the future like exactly the way it was going to be. Like that's, you realize how prophetic that video is. <laughs> right? As the talking heads say, same as it ever was. Okay? So I want to get back to, I want to make a point. So re- remember, um, remember this guy. There is this mysterious something or other that makes us and cells able to observe. And uh, I'm not going to go into the technical details, but I wrote a a scientific paper, peer-reviewed, published, all that kind of stuff, two years ago. It is a mathematical proof that whatever this magical thing is, computers, as they currently exist, will never have. Now, some other kind of computer, maybe someday a quantum computer, maybe some other thing could have that. But a computer, as currently defined, has zero. Anytime you hear anybody suggesting that ChatGPT is sentient or self-aware or any of that, Ignore everything they say after that. It is not true. Nobody has figured this out. The biologists are still trying to avoid admitting that they haven't figured this out, but they haven't. So I'm going to give you an actual definition. What is it? Not what is this thing, but what is it that we can do that computers can't? There's actually a very simple answer. There are two kinds of reasoning. There's deductive and inductive. Some of you have heard this, so please don't participate. Most of you will not have heard this. I'm going to give you a riddle. You're pushing your car. You stop in front of a hotel and suddenly realize you're bankrupt. Where are you? You're pushing your car, you stop in front of a hotel, and suddenly realize you're bankrupt. Where are you? Monopoly. Isn't that a good riddle? (laughs) Now, let's slow down the film strip on that. I didn't want to go through some elongated thing with you guys and take this apart, but if we did, it would be, well... 
is the car a Toyota? Is the car, like, is the car 10 feet long like a typical car? No. Is the car made out of plastic? Yes. Does the car have metal? No. Is the car an inch long? Is the hotel a Hyatt? When you're presented with a riddle and then you start asking questions, you start eliminating and eliminating. And then you, you get to the answer. That is inductive reasoning. Inductive reasoning is riddles. You can't deduce from my setup what the answer is. You have to throw out possibilities and then use a process of elimination. And nobody, there's no mathematical formula for what the possibilities are. The possibilities are infinite. Computers can't do that without being programmed to do it. And even when they're programmed to do it, they only appear to be solving a riddle. They're not actually solving a riddle. But all living things do this. Deductive reasoning is all men are mortal. Socrates is man. Socrates is mortal. Deductive reasoning is 5 plus 7 is 12. Like, you just turn the crank and you get to an answer and there's one answer. That's what computers do. So, how many of you have a toddler who was born during the pandemic, like in 2020 or 21? Okay, so your toddler would be a perfect example of this. Your kid spent the first two years of his life mostly in the house or the yard, right? Didn't go very far. Did he still learn to work, to walk? Did he still learn to talk? Still learn to do all the stuff, right? Okay. A toddler with a very limited data set learns to do all that stuff, even in a pandemic where they can't really go anywhere, right? By... Most of it's feedback, feedback, feedback. They do stuff, they try stuff. It's total, you know, trial and error, chaos. But within two years, they can talk. Do you know what it takes to teach computers how to talk like a human? The whole damn internet. (laughs) The difference is vast. And like I said, computers as currently defined will never do this. Now, maybe somebody tomorrow will invent some other kind of computer, or maybe they'll get quantum computers to actually work, which they don't work very well right now. I don't know. But don't buy the hype. I had, uh, a couple years ago, I was introduced by an investor to a guy. A guy said, I know this AI guy. You should talk to him. And so I talked to him. And he believed that his AI machines were conscious beings. Like he really did, really believes it. No, that, that thing, that, that thing it's, it knows you're there, Bob. It's intelligent. It's just, it's no different than you. He's lobbying for computers to have human rights because he wants computers to own patents because he doesn't think he should own the patent that his AI machine came up with. You're going to see this. And he's just like, don't buy it. And I called the investor. I said, have you invested money with this guy? No, uh, I don't think you should. I, I said, look, 
I'm not saying his technology is bad, but here was the other warning sign. The guy was like, I'm trying to figure out how to monetize this. I'm trying to get it off the ground, and I'm looking for investors. I said, well, you know what you should do? What's that? You should make a Roomba. Like, just make a vacuum cleaner that will never get stuck and always vacuum up the floor, and you'll make $200 million easy, and then you could go do whatever. He thought this was beneath him. This is not a good sign. This is not somebody you invest in. When they have... Okay, his ego is so big, he thinks that his AI machine is sentient, and he won't make a Roomba. So, anyway, getting a little off track here. There's another thing that computers don't do, that humans do, and that is have intuitions, and have clairvoyance, and get what I like to call memos from the head office. How many of you got a book from me called Memos from the Head Office? All right, good. That book, interestingly, has the highest Amazon review rating of any of my books, and I thought it would have the lowest, because this book is definitely not your standard business stuff. But I'm going to tell you a story that's in the book that inspired me to write the book. I had a guy, this was August 2013. I had a little tiny workshop at my house, I had four businesses in the room, two days. We're at dinner the first day. The guy says, you know what, Perry? I had such a good time. I didn't think about my lawsuit all day. And I go, lawsuit? He goes, oh, never mind. I don't want to get into that. Next morning, so here's my daily regimen. I do not vary from this. I've been doing this for 10 years. Never missed a day most important thing, habit I've ever cultivated. I wake up in the morning, and I do what I call renaissance time. And renaissance time for me is I get my notebook, I free write, I stream, I pray, I listen, I meditate, and I have to get spiritually right with the world before I come out of my cave and do other stuff. So I was doing my renaissance time the very next morning after we had that conversation, and I write in my notebook... Hey, God, what should I talk about at the workshop today? And immediately I get this answer. Ask the guy about his lawsuit. Talk to him about inner healing and forgiveness. Okay. So everybody shows up at 9. We do housekeeping. I look at my watch. It's 9.20. I said, hey, I'm supposed to ask you about your lawsuit. Tell me about your lawsuit. He's sitting there with his wife. He goes, oh, well, this has been hanging over my head for two years. I have an employee who's left the company. She says that I sexually harassed her. There's no witnesses. There's no evidence. There's my word against hers. I didn't do it, but I can't prove it. This has been dragging on for two years, and I'm terrified this is going to go to trial. You never know what a jury's going to do. This is just awful. And I said, well... One thing that I have seen that blocks people from prosperity is bitterness and unforgiveness. I would like you to ask you to do something that probably doesn't sound very logical. I would like you to tell God that 
you want to forgive her and you want good things to happen in her life. And he looks at his wife and his wife looks at him. And they're like, okay, yeah, I get it. And so they nod. And then he goes, my phone just buzzed. And he goes, it's my lawyer. He wants me to call. I look at my watch and it's 924. So we've been talking about this for four minutes. Take the call. It's good news. His wife goes, it's never good news when that guy calls. Take the call. Leaves the room. Comes back 10 minutes later and he goes, they want to settle. And they're willing to settle for $10,000 less than I decided I would settle for two weeks ago. And he went home. He wrote a $120,000 check. It was done. So I have a question for you. Was it just a coincidence that he forgave the lady at 922 and the phone buzzed at 924? Well, I can't tell you what you have to think because that's called inductive reasoning. That's a riddle. And you're going to make that decision based on your cosmic framework of how the world works. And there's not a math equation that's going to prove it to you. But to me, it seems like a lot of sigmas off of statistical norms that that happened. So like, I think, yeah, I think there's a causal relationship between those two events. And I wrote this book called Memos from the Head Off. So you know, when you ask a question and you get an answer like that, I call that a, mem a memo from the head office. And I believe that none of us are smart enough computationally to figure out the stuff that gets thrown at us. There's no way. And so one of my priorities, being an engineer and an analytical person, there's lots of woo-woo books and spiritual books. And one of my peeves is most of them there's no name, there's no social security number, there's no city, there's no state, there's no date. There's just this fluffy story that sort of sounds like rainbows and unicorns, even though it might be completely true. And so I wanted to write a book where pretty much everybody in the book, there's a name, there's a social security number, there's a website, there's a date, there's I was driving down, one of my favorite chapters is screaming at God on the 405, and this lady is talking about driving through LA, and she's mad because a client just can't, not only canceled and asked for a refund, and like, what am I supposed to do about this? And she got an answer. It's a very interesting thing. So when... Um, Brian and Carla asked us, well, would you like to give a gift to the group? That's the gift. I think, yeah, like, you guys should, I want you to read this book. I, I got other books, but I think you should read this book. I'm, I'm, I'm really proud of it. And like I said, I think life is way too complicated to figure it out all yourself. It just is. So, my gift to you. Let's see, what else do we want to talk about today? Oh, I got some fun little slides. Um, AV crew, could you like... So I told Brian that we're going to talk about thinking. So the guys see us a big sign that says stop and think, and it says it sort of makes you stop and think, doesn't it? Next slide. 
Think outside the office. Oh, man. I got a story for you. When I was in college, I had a job in a warehouse at a tech company that made this equipment. And my previous job had been at WW Granger, which is a wholesale company. And Granger is like well-oiled machine. And I learned a lot just working in a company like that. And now this job, the warehouse was a mess. And you had to like memorize where all these different parts are because it, it didn't really tell you. And so one afternoon, I walked across the hall to the IT manager and I said, on this printout where I'm picking all these parts off the shelf, is it possible to have a field that says the location of the part? He said, oh yeah, well they told me to delete that, so I took it out of the report. The next morning, I go into work. I haven't even been there three minutes and I get called into my boss's office and she's in there and her boss is in there. And she says, you went over my head. What? You talked to Rich Matika yesterday. Uh, yeah, uh, I want to see if you could add a field to a form on the printout like before I made the suggestion. She goes, you don't go over my head. I'm sorry, this is your last day of work. And I got fired. I guess they don't want to improve the efficiency, but how many of you not only have one story like that, you've got like 10. <laughs> Next slide, please. Yeah, the, uh, the dinosaur in the chair and the, the think sign on the wall and the dead body behind the desk. There's a lot of that that goes on in the world. And if you're actually going to think you're going to defy the conventional wisdom and you're going to disagree with people and that's your job. And I think you should pursue, learn from, and emulate people who regularly piss off the status quo. So I'll tell you about one of these people. Dennis Noble is one of the guys that invited me to write that paper. Dennis is 86 years old. He's an Oxford professor who took up ballroom dancing last year. And when he's a, he is a professor emeritus, which means retired, which also means now you can do what you really want to do. But most people, by the time they get there, Jordan Peterson has a saying, people say, I'll really say what I think after I get my PhD. And then they get their PhD, and then they don't say what they think. And then they, they say, well, I'll say what I really think when I become a professor. And then they become a professor, and then they don't. Then they say, I'll say what I really think when I get tenure. And by the time they get tenure, they don't have any original thoughts. This is how the world works. Being retired should mean that now you get to go mess things up. But that's not what most people do. But Dennis, Dennis is the guy who figured out how the cardiac rhythm in the heart works in 1961. And it made pacemakers possible. And he's world famous because of this. And he's had a stellar career as a physiologist. And when he retired in 2004, he said, 
now that nobody can tell me what to do, I am going to go fix evolutionary biology because that field is jacked up. And he did. And for the first 10 years, probably 12, they pelted him with rocks and garbage. But he had too many letters behind his name and he had too much credibility to take him out. And so he just kept at it and kept at it and kept at it. And since 2016, when he organized a seminar at the Royal Society, the opposition has stopped. It's just stopped. In fact, last June, he debated Richard Dawkins. A lot of you would know who Richard Dawkins is, a very famous guy. He debated Richard Dawkins in the UK. And if you understood what was really being said, and if you knew the science you saw that he politely, gentlemanly, gingerly, graciously kicked his ass. Which is exactly what needed to happen. And it needed to be done graciously because there's a long history of this kind of stuff not being discussed well. And now in the last several years, words like polarization and cancel culture and all that have you know, gone to the top of the concern list. So in addition to being able to simplify things, another really, really important piece is civilized dialogue. Can you hold your peace with people who violently disagree with you? Because Solomon said, he who rules his tongue is stronger than he who rules an entire city. Another thing that I think is extremely important is you should read something written before Gutenberg every day. Now, why would I say that? Why Gutenberg? Well, Gutenberg invented the printing press. So anything that we have that was written before the printing press, if we still have it, it means it survived the sacking of Rome and the burning of Alexandria and, like, and the hordes and the Huns and the earthquakes and the hurricanes and the floods and everything. Why? Because scribes hid it in clay jars and the Qumran desert and all that kind of stuff. In other words, it's the top 20% of 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 anything that's ever been written which is not really the same as, hey, everybody, I'm on Twitter and I ate sushi today. <laughs> if your entire life is consumed with, hi, everybody, I'm Twitter and I ate sushi today, you have no sense of how long anything lasts. And most, most stuff that most people are saying is completely useless. It'll be, it's completely forgettable. It doesn't have any value. So how do you learn to recognize what's good and what's not? You read the pre-Gutenberg literature. Now remember I told you about the quantum physics professor that was like, okay, here's the equations, solve the equations, pass the test. I passed the test, didn't understand what it means. I found it only a month ago. There's a phrase for this. It's called shut up and calculate. 
Now, let me give you a marketing example of shut up and calculate. How many of you would agree it would be a good idea if my Google Analytics was properly installed and had all the right metrics in it and all the pixels were in the right places and it was accurately reporting my visitors? How many of you agree that would, at least in theory, that's a really good idea? Okay, so let's say you have that. And let's say that's all you know. You are not allowed to know anything about your customer other than the stats. How good of a marketer would you be? Not very good. Not very. <laughs> because you have to know what the numbers mean. And you only figure out what the numbers mean when you talk to people, I've got this phrase, I call it death by optimization. We start a company, we buy some ads online, we have a landing page, and we have an offer, and every decision we make is going to be based on increasing the conversion rate. It will eventually deteriorate to naked pictures of Beyonce. And it'll have no value whatsoever. Death by optimization. People who are married to the numbers, like, I mean, there's like lots of like corporate raiders and bean counters. They're basically on the spectrum, and probably half of us are on the spectrum, which maybe that's okay. But, like, they completely miss the music. They might hear the words, but, like, they don't get it. And they'll destroy an entire culture to make 100000 more dollars. It's like, you have to retain your humanity. And the Gutenberg stuff is the way that you do it. The best way to tell what's going to last is to be so schooled in stuff that's lasted 500, 1,000, 2,000, 5,000 years that you immediately recognize superficiality the minute it hits you. Like, oh, that's a bad idea. Oh, you're so conservative. Hey, man, move the ancient boundary at your own peril. So, I just want to circle back to what I said at the beginning, which is that I think that instead of pandering to the lowest common denominator, you can exercise your ability to simplify, and you can exercise your ability to effectively communicate, and you can raise the level instead of watching it go down. And I think everybody actually has a moral obligation to do so. We've all seen what politics has descended to. All of this polarization in politics is the end result of death by optimization. There's almost no civilized dialogue left. And like, we're living on fumes, man. You, you just can't afford to indulge in it. 
and it's easier to do in person. I'm not saying it can't be done online. You know, I, I really appreciated that dialogue we were having about virtual, and you, you know, you're going to kind of have to do both. But there's nothing like sitting down and having a coffee or a beer with somebody and seeing the whites of their eyes. When the George Floyd riots were going on, <laughs> uh, this is a funny, crazy story. Um, a sign appeared in my yard and it said Black Lives Matter and a bunch of other kind of political stuff on a Sunday. And now, okay, I'm a professional communicator and I hate those signs. I, I just feel like those signs are virtue signaling. Now I realize they're not that to everybody, but like, what is this? So I sent a text to the family. And my wife calls me, and she's very upset. She goes, uh, Perry, I put that sign in the yard. And then she gave me like this very, she said, our neighbors who adopted a black child have been having horrible racism online, and, and I'm supporting her with that. I call my black friend, Vivian, who's one of my dearest friends. I go, what do I do about this? She goes, don't touch that sign, Perry, Perry Marshall. Don't touch that sign, Perry St. Marshall. Okay, well, my text causes this flurry of stuff, which within like 15 minutes, like, Dad, you're a racist. And I'm like, okay, if my family can't deal with this, I don't know how anybody else is going to. I mean, I think I've got a pretty good family. And um, it took about a week of, hey, could we like go out for a burger and just talk about this? You know, and we kind of called the dogs off. But I remember my, my, uh, my son, Caden, who's just a little younger than Kyler. He goes, boy, you know, it's, Dad, it's really funny. Like, when I sit down and talk to you, your point of view isn't nearly as different from mine as I thought. No, of course it's not. I'm not a racist. Chicago's racist. Chicago's got terrible racism problems. And guess what? I've been watching this for the last 25 years. And I like, I might know a thing or two that's better than a bumper sticker. It's like, well, those conversations were not going to happen on text, even from a professional communicator. It had to be a hamburger or two or three and a long conversation, and a lot of stories, and a lot of experiences. And so, that's kind of my hodgepodge of different things that I wanted to talk to you about today. I think this stuff is urgently important. And uh, I, I want to encourage you all to use your autonomy, and your freedom, and your options, and your money, and your mastermind groups, and your advice, and your interesting friends to raise the bar in the world and not lower it. So thank you very much. Well, I don't know what to say. That was, I mean, to talk about thinking the way Perry's talking about it is, it, it actually, talking about just thinking, it, it un underestimates what you just talked about. I do think that, I mean, I made a few notes that were, just they, they hit me and you know the idea of the poor man's peer review I thought was I mean that wasn't the biggest headline but that one really 
got to me. And also that, you know, and, and Joe talks about this, Marie Forleo talks about this, you know, it's like skimming the bottom 20 or 30% of everybody in your life is actually a pretty, maybe more than that. I'm, I'm being, as I am, I'm Jewish guilt. I'm being a little kinder. But I think that, you know, it's the only way to, like, flip it the other way so that you can think because you're be, not being weighed down by the bottom, bottom folks. And you hate saying that. You know, Dan Sullivan always says, you know, if you really want to be bold in your thinking and go further, you're going to have to lose some friends yeah. or people you thought were your friends. Mm-hmm. And then you add the polarization aspect into it, and people are losing friends just over that. Yeah. So, I mean, there was so much in there. I, I have questions for Perry that don't relate to what he talked about, but they, they, I would be doing a disservice by not addressing some of the stuff he talked about. If anybody has any questions, Gabe, I want to hear some people here. I was actually just curious what you read pre-Gutenberg, because I, I read a little bit before that, but I'm curious what's on your list. Bible's on the top of the list. The book of Proverbs That in was the a Bible. bestseller, by the way. Yeah, it was, yeah. It was a pretty popular book. <laughs> yeah, for a exactly. long time. Yeah. Um, Pre-Gutenberg. I like Seneca, Euclid. Now, this is not everybody's cup of tea, but you know the stuff they teach you in geometry class, that's a part of it. It doesn't necessarily have to be that old. I've been reading Emerson lately, and he is brilliant. Shakespeare is amazing. When I was writing Over Deliver, we had a discussion because I said, I think I'm going to do a chapter about original source. And then you got me on a podcast. We talked about it. And of course, it was the most repetitive chapter in my book because I'm obsessed with that. Mm -hmm. And none of that was pre-Gutenberg. I mean, it was uh, pre-David Ogilvy, but it wasn't pre-Gutenberg. The the older it is, the better it is. If you go to perrymarshall.com and type Gutenberg, I've got a whole blog post called, you should read something written before Gutenberg every day. It's got a whole list of stuff. Pick any of it. And it's good. You read Socrates, read Plato. My 18-year-old is reading Plato's dialogues in one of his school classes. It's a homeschool class, but it's being taught by this college grad. And he's like, Dad, these guys like figured out like the whole moral fabric of everything. 20, like, this is way ahead of most people. <laughs> And I'm like, yes, it is. Just because they figured it out a long time ago doesn't mean anybody knows it. And so, yeah, like, like dig to read the Kama Sutra, read the Quran, read the Upanishads. Like, I, I don't know what like trips your trigger. And especially anytime you notice people mocking old books, those, those are the ones you should read. Yeah, that's good advice. Who else? Yeah, well, or banning them, right? What did this provoke? I mean, what for you? <laughs> so much. I mean, I. Uh, I mean, good I, to I'm, see you. Yeah, you too, Perry. So, like this whole thing about AI. Now, I mean, ugh, not having con. You know, people thinking, oh, it's consciousness, so I can create yeah. a human. That just how arrogant the human being is. To think that they yeah. could be God. I mean, come on. You know, and this just drives me crazy every morning. Well, that's exactly what it is. Yeah. Like, it's like we're God or we're not God, and we're God sells better than we're not God. <laughs> <laughs> so it does. 
It's better for raising venture capital. <laughs> it's better for getting scientific grants. It's better, like, um, oh, what, one of the things Brian and I talked about is that making people think from a sales point of view is like a big bucket of ice water. Yeah. But, like, in all of my travels, the smartest people are the ones that are talking about what we don't know. It's the idiots who are talking about what they know. You want to be with the I don't know crowd. Usually you find out they're a lot smarter than everybody else, but the smarter you get, the more you realize, like, man, I'm just a pimple. Yeah. You were going to say something else, I think. No, I mean, I have a lot to say about that. I, I just want to get your take on the double slit experiment, like why you think that that waves change into particles. and Like, I'm trying to wrap... There's an answer for that. It's, and I don't think it's because we think it, because that to me is too much the whole idea of being a god. Okay, so just really quick, I think this is what's going on. So this is what you and I would think of as the normal, classical behavior of the world. And there is the quantum level which I think of as it is the math of everything that is possible at the current moment. And I think consciousness, whatever it is, is above that and exists outside of space and time. And when we want to do something, we pull a possibility from this level into the actual. And I think this is how the world really works, which is completely upside down from the classical way. We're totally inverted. And the muse, that's what the muse is. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yes. All the artists. Yeah. Like, there's a super famous um, producer that just had a Ruben. Okay. He talks about it. You go all through literature, Beethoven, all those guys... They all say, well, I didn't come up with this. I just heard it. I just, like, I think the best thing that you can do creatively is put yourself in the liminal space where that can happen. And where I always find it happening is, like, doing really fun stuff like going to the symphony. My, My son Xander is almost 19. He is a violin and piano fanatic. And at least once every two months, we go to the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, and we have seats in the terrace, which is right above the trumpets, so you can see the conductor's face, and the whole orchestra is right in front of us. And I tell you what, Bruckner or Tchaikovsky's Manfred Symphony, sitting in that seat, it's glorious. And like, most people are in traffic yelling at somebody. It's like, okay, being in traffic yelling at somebody is part of life. But like, if you don't carve out space to go do beautiful things or go to a concert or paint or whatever, and really that creative stuff should be at the top of your priority list. You don't just give it the scraps. You have to nourish it. One of the mistakes that I made when I was in my 20s was I would set impossible business goals and then I don't get any of the stuff I really want until I achieve the impossible business goal. Like I remember in the early 90s, I wanted a portable CD player. Well, I'll do that when I become a direct distributor. 
I never got it. <laughs> well, because being a direct distributor didn't work because it was basically a scam. And, and like I was starving my inner artist, and lots of people do this. They just starve themselves, and they work themselves to death. And they're like, well, I don't know. Maybe I'll think at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. No, you don't think at 4 o'clock. You're not thinking at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. You're worn out. You should be thinking at 7.30 or 8.30 in the morning. And you should go to a symphony every now and then, or whatever inspires you. I mean, that, I mean that's what, when Dan, talks, Dan Sullivan talks about the entrepreneurial mind, it's sort of like, I want it when I want it. I want it because I want it. And don't put, you know, don't put limits on what you really want. I mean, you know, he has another phrase, which I don't use in mixed company too often because it, you, can, you can offend people, but it's like, you know, always spend more when you can spend less. And I don't mean that you waste money, but if it's something that you really want, like money, I mean, again, if you don't have the money, you can't do it. If they got a loan for it, I wouldn't do that. But it's like, mm-hmm. I, and maybe and maybe because of my advanced age, I don't think about the price tag usually well, because if it's going to create joy, that's way worth, that's worth more than anything. And I love that. I love that image of sitting in front of the symphony. That was just a great image that... Chat GPT can never give you. Well, you know, we could have had this event at the Red Roof Inn. We could have. It would have saved you quite a bit of money, Brian. We could have, but I wasn't going to do it. <laughs> you know, the, the room block was pretty reasonable, though, for a nice hotel, right? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> but I, it's I, a great creative space. It is. I, I, it's always about the space. It's always about the space for me. It's about the environment. I, I, I've got that image of sitting right, right above the trumpets. That, that was a great image. That was fantastic. Oh, Kelly and then Hi, Kelly. Teresa. Hey, Kelly. Hi. So I just wanted to draw a connection. I'm sure you've realized it, but maybe not. I'll say it just in case. So you have the light particles. You have us. Um, you're encouraging us to read books before Gutenberg. But do you also realize that you re-explained Plato's um, theory of the cave. Like, yes. that's, it's the same drawing. Plato's theory of the cave is inductive Yeah, reasoning. the allegory of the cave. It's the same, like the, the picture She's of read it, stuff before Gutenberg. Yeah. The picture is the <laughs> yeah. same. And it also relates to AI because it's not, like people who experience the world around them are not the smart people. It's the people who are going out and going to the symphony mm-hmm. and seeking knowledge and seeking in the truth world. and right. trying to... So it's just a different... All these years later, we're still trying to figure it out. Yes, and play, the, the capacity to be in Plato's cave and ask what's outside of it, you know what that is? Religion. It is the human's ability to imagine what they cannot see or prove Mm -hmm. that is the essence of humanity. Mm -hmm. Hmm. That's all I had to say. (laughs) (laughs) That was good, Kelly. That was good. Terry and Kyler's car is going to be here in 10 minutes. Um, I saw Joe wanted to say. Yeah, oh, Joe. Oh, Teresa. Sorry, Teresa. I'm sorry. Teresa. Teresa. I want to thank you for the topic, first of all. I know growing up, my Italian grandfather had a cartoon in his office on the bulletin board in the break room. He, ran a, a, he had his own nationwide business. And it was a picture of a frog throwing up on the other side of the road. Of course, the car's going by. Stop and think. <laughs> yeah. 
yes. And Keith Cunningham also says, have thinking time. Now, I'm curious what you would think about in terms of a scenario where someone gets physical exercise, does something creative, and then submerges themselves for as long as they can underwater to stimulate the creative processes and to have their answers come to them. Same as the case. That, that, that sounds that sounds great. Like, um, it sounds like something you must do. Or uh, I haven't tried it yet. I read about it. Um, I'm in the pool a lot, but I've not, I haven't done the submerged thing just to stimulate my thought processes. So, I mean, I don't really know about the submersion part, but one one thing is for sure is that being physically active is a huge boost to. I mean. I wish I had time for some stories, and we don't. But yes, I, I think getting out, having exercise, exercise that's fun. Like if the gym's fun, then go to the gym. If gym isn't fun, then find uh, exercise that is fun. Cool. Joe. Thank you. Well, no, I mean, what you're saying here about exercise and this final thing is a very important point with humans being able to feel connected in the world because if uh you know it's not an intellectual thing um like hopefully we'll have time me and jim to go jump in the ocean here because he said it's about 40 degrees right now which we will do that because you get a 200 percent dopamine hit from uh jumping got to get the cold plunge right no cold, yeah you get 150 percent dopamine hit from uh sex 55 percent from chocolate 225 percent from cocaine a thousand percent from uh amphetamines, if you look at porn, if you look at the internet, you're getting dopamine hits all day long. Workaholism, doing deals, all this is, we're all dopamine machines. And so all the stuff that people do so that, that um, what was the movie that was from? Um, Wally. Yeah. I saw that movie, but watching it in the context here was brilliant. That unfortunately is where a lot of the world is at. Not that dramatic, but not that too far off. In consuming sugar, which is the number one killer in America, and then tobacco second, alcohol third, opiates fourth. People are numbing themselves continuously. And what I th- what came to me was, uh, you know, Ken was talking about the real Anthony Fauci. That book sold over a million copies with zero media until after it sold a million copies. And still, you know, I think the next. I hope this doesn't happen, but I think the next uh, pandemic will be an internet blackout. And if that happens and people don't have access to screens, people will lose their shit. People will kill each other. There will be a lot of disaster. And it'd be interesting to see what would happen as the after effect of that because people are so consumed now with propaganda. And you said one thing in your talk. You said early on about uh, the scientists. There's no independence of thinking without independence of money. And if you follow the money, like... All of these grifts and virtual signaling things, like you take the whole trans movement right now. Well, if you follow the money, the actual lifetime value of someone that transitions uh, is about $10 million to pharmaceutical companies, doctors, and things like that. Martin Rothblatt is a friend of mine. Different people have different uh, opinions of that. That's a a guy that became a woman and founded Sirius Radio and invented satellite radio. there's this whole sort of like, is this person good? Is this person bad? The powers that be don't give a shit about those people. They act like they do, but they really don't. It's a money thing. And if you follow the money, uh, you know, anyone that would support Fauci hasn't done enough research. They just don't know the thing. It's an yeah. evil human. Was he born that way? I have no idea. But there's a lot, of, and it'd be impossible. You have to be delusional to not like do research and actually not c- connect the dots. 
and you can say, that's my opinion, great, that's my opinion. But if you do the research, I can't see anyone that... But if you, yeah. are, if you are needing money, propaganda works on desperation. Propaganda works when people, you know, how many people work for companies that, you know, I always like the line, whoever profits from the crime is guilty of it. You know, mm-hmm. my, my girlfriend's a doctor. There's a lot of doctors, they don't follow the oath of Hippocrates, you know, do no harm. There's a lot of doctors that are doing harm right now. And they're in a situation where I don't know if they would survive if they didn't. It's a systemic problem. So all of this stuff, I mean, the one thing we all can control is our own lives, our own connection. I have to say the serenity prayer a lot because the big hang-up is, you know, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. The wisdom to know the difference is difficult because you have to say, what can we do? What can we not do? How do you accept people that have different... You know, I constantly try to put myself in positions with people that believe the exact opposite of me so I can understand more about them. Because you don't change minds by fighting people. You have to really understand who they are, even to be a good marketer. You know, you have to understand what's, you know, what the mindset of your clients and what their pain and what their hurts are and do something about it. But the, that, what you started out with and this whole insight of thinking is really valuable and really important. But I will say the last thing, flow state is the place where we feel really connected. You know, Stephen Kotler, who wrote a bunch of books on flow, you know, the opposite of addiction is connection. And the ultimate form of connection is flow, where you feel real connected to life. And so all of the business stuff and all of these things, if you don't make money, if you don't at least have that part handled, you can become susceptible to a lot of things that you probably would not take on if you don't have independence. Not, and I don't, like, money's not everything. You know, people that say money can't buy happiness haven't given enough of it away. I buy happiness all the time. Happiness is a great, you know, you can buy it with money, but, it's, but money can also buy misery. When I was a, a full-blown addict, I bought myself a lot of destruction. So it's, it's a tool. All of these things are a tool, and it's all how you yield the tool. So anyway, I appreciate it. I got a lot of good perspective about it. And I'm going to go watch that movie again. <laughs> when was it? It, it really is that old, right? It's it, about 10 years. Yeah. yeah. 10 years, yeah. But that, it is, it is pro, 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 profe- prophetic. Prophetic. Yes, it's yes, prophetic. Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, but anyway, so thanks. We got to get your car, but yeah. Do you want to, um, it seems so mundane to talk about Titans of Direct Response after that. Oh, yeah. But yeah, what were you going to say? Yeah, what were you going to say? Well, I just, I don't think I could give this talk most places. Like, what, you're going to talk about thinking? So I just, I'm just really glad that we're in an environment where everyone is so receptive. Like, everybody just seems energized as opposed to maybe throwing bricks at And me. even at 5.30, you know. <laughs> um, no, but seriously, that, that is true. I mean, there's a lot of topics you can't have in mixed company. That's why you got to find the company, the company you keep. And yeah. Doesn't it doesn't mean we all agree, you know, that's not what we're talking about here. But this group was, you know, it's curated because of, you know, from my list and not just me, but, you know, people who I've gravitated to in my life. Yeah. And uh, I knew whatever you talked about would be great. And this was even greater than that. So thank you. Um, yeah. I just wanted to, you know, just because I promised Perry that we're going to do the same thing at Perry's event May 1st when I'm there. I won't be as stimulating as you were here, but I'll try to do my, my part. But we, we want to do a Titans of Direct Response event. I don't, you know, it's obviously it's going to be a lot of different speakers. We'll bring some of the same back, you know. I mean, 
I mean, I could just listen to Perry for a week, and that would be a good event. But what would, what would people, you think, and not just you, but people who would come to the event, what do you think they would pay $5,000 for you know, a two-and-a-half-day event that would kind of take, and it's got to be marketing. I mean, you know, it's, it, it, I'm not competing with Genius Network's annual event in any way. But what would it take for you to come to an event like that? And what would it take for you know, us to create an event like that? Anything you want to add? That was like the one question that I thought would be the best to ask. Well, but. the one you did nine and a half years ago was really extraordinary. And there was a lot of people that showed up. And I remember how much cutting-edge stuff was there, even from people that you wouldn't normally think. Like, there was infomercial stuff that was just way... Yeah, yeah, that was with uh, Greg Ranker. I mean, Ken McCarthy was there, and he was talking about, you know, how you save money. And the people in the audience were like, holy shit, you know? And it was a surprise. It was a very surprising presentation. Yours was great. I mean, yeah, so... It was uh, 3500 per ticket, and it was 5000 for VIP. And the VIP, you got a hot seat. We had a dinner with, like, were you at the dinner? I couldn't make it to that. So That's that was right. like we, we did a board, uh, an intentional boardroom dinner. It was one table. There were, like, 70 people. One table, I had to, had to set it up this way, because that's why we did it at boardroom, and I had Dan Kennedy on the other end, I was at one end. Was anybody there? Oh, Paul was there? Oh, yeah, a lot of people. That was a wild, that was, it was really amazing. So they got the dinner, they got the third day, which was hot seats, uh, David, David, what's that? Oh, yeah, everybody got the books, I think. Yeah, we had the swipe files, right. There's still some... In, in inventory, we still have a couple of those things. But like we, um, so you, you got the dinner, and then the, and on the on the third day when we did hot seats, which David's going to take the mic now, but not because of this. But he and I did hot seats all day. We did twenty six hot seats in ten hours. Wow. Yeah, we had Marcella Allison playing policewoman to uh-huh. like keep it on track because David and I obviously could talk forever. No, me, I could talk forever. You could talk somewhat forever, and then. Um, we couldn't even give hot seats to everybody, but they still paid the 5000 just to be in the room. So, I don't know. Uh, David. Yeah, I was going to say, I think... And David it, was a speaker there, too. You know, it's all well and good, the content, and it'll be good content, and it'll be whatever it is. But I, I think what will get them there is kind of that this is like a rep... that you missed it the first time, or you were there the first time, and it's happening again. And you don't want to miss it, you know, because of what it was last time. This whole thing came out of that. So many relationships, friendships, so many amazing sounds things. Sounds like you can write, you're going to write the sales letter, right? Yeah, it sounds like <laughs> it, doesn't it? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But that's what it is, really. It's that feeling, and it's that, you know, that you've got to be there for this. There's a whole new generation of marketers since then, too. Yes, and that, yeah. that's, so that's one of the, th- the important thing. Right, and yeah. the original event was a tribute event to Marty and to Boardroom, and of course, there were no female speakers because Boardroom, Kim knows this, but not by intention, just because that's how Boardroom was started by a lot of men. You know, I, I, saw, I saw Ryan Levesque was an event, a, a, a virtual event, a summit, that was from Vrinda Norman. Remember Vrinda? She was doing this summit, and there were like 18 speakers, two men, 16 online marketing badass women. I hadn't heard, I heard of one of them. So shame on me. I mean, I could watch these and see males also that I've never heard of, and I'm glad I haven't. But the women, 
we got to do some research because it's not only has to be, you know, all genders, but it's got to be the best of the best, you know, and it's going to be a big update because, you know, first of all, you know, a couple of our speakers are dead. <laughs> you know, Joe Sugarman's gone and, and uh, Fred Catone is gone. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I was just saying, what, what would get me there is, like, all the OGs of marketing. Like, I, if I could have gone to the first one, I would have. And, like, so, yes, I want, I'm all about cutting-edge stuff, but I can find that anywhere. Can we get any speakers before Gutenberg? Woo! <laughs> I've talked to Plato's agent, <laughs> and she's going to get back to me. Uh, yeah. Funny. Um, yeah, <laughs> true. Yeah, he's looking for some work, right? <laughs> Yeah, you know, I, I don't know if that's the prevailing view. Like the, yeah. like for Perry and I, yeah, I mean, I know that because you know, I was telling somebody the story today that when I was in my twenties, and those of you who read my blog would know this. When I was in my twenties, Michael Fishman makes fun of me all the time because all of the people that I gravitated to were in their seventies. Well, lo and behold, they're all dead now. But I got more wisdom that way by going to the OGs, going... Because, mm-hmm. you know, there's nothing that replaces 50 years, 60 years of experience, Richard Vigory mm-hmm. example. And so, for me, that would be outstanding. Would that attract people to come for, you know, $5,000 yeah, a ticket? I mean, I'm with Gabe. I think it would. Um, and I think younger people would feel the same way because, you know, it's almost... I mean, not to bring in scarcity, but you, you brought up the fact that, like, some of these people are no longer even with us, so when are you going to get a chance to hear these people and really learn from, you know, these people, and whereas you got 10 or 20 more years, you can go listen to Chris Wojciechowski, for example, he's one of my good friends, but, you know, he's a young guy, so I don't know, I think that would be a draw, and I definitely think, you know, I think about what a bargain it was for just 1500 more to go VIP, I'm, like, kicking myself now, like, why didn't I do that? Yeah, you did okay since then. I did all right, but I'm just thinking, you know, definitely just even factoring in inflation, you're probably looking at least 5K, you know, like you said, but I would maybe jump it to 10K and think about really beefing up that VIP, you know. And and look, you can guarantee that if we're working on it, we're going to over-deliver. One of the things that happened also is that, I said to this Joe last night, that, you know, uh, Dan Kennedy sent a, a fax to Perry, and, um, you know, so he's looking at it, and it's like, oh, you know, if you're ever going to do anything. And I think that might have given you the impetus to then, you know, get in touch with me. Maybe. I don't know. If you're ever going to do a 10-year. And we started talking, and it's like, you know, I don't think Dan will watch this video, but, you know, Dan is, he comes with a lot of baggage. He comes with the best information, absolutely. But he comes with, you know, the private plane and this and you know and and the iced tea and the and the and the uh, what's the thing they call the overhead the Elmo right um, that's how he rolls but I don't know that we want to roll like that if everybody says here that you got to have Dan Kennedy then maybe we'll consider it but you know uh, anyway so I'm I'm not clear are you trying to like get advice on how to charge or when to pitch this or what exactly you're trying to figure no, out I mean, we could uh, you, we could solve this if you want Well I'm the director of sales prevention so uh, why clearly. don't you do it No no so when is the event first off Well we we'll probably it'll be next it'll be the fall of 2024 You got a whole year to deal with this yeah, shit Yeah but we got to right? start dealing with it All right so you know the Dean Jackson line a compelling offer is 10 times more powerful than a convincing argument Right, and a compelling so, offer. I think we have some ideas on got that. Got everyone here. Like, it'd be great to have, take one of these little Titan grams or whatever you call them. 
And what is the most compelling offer okay. or something Use that somebody would want? And send it to me. Okay, feed that shit into Chat GPT. <laughs> uh, come up with some sales letter. You'd be surprised; it'll get your brain working. But yeah, I mean, uh, Dan, like I might go to Dan's like event he's doing just for morbid curiosity because Dan is such a pain in the ass, but he's smart, you mm. know. And but again, I mean, you can come up with uh, like yeah. But if you want to go through you know a torture to get Dan, well, there I'll, I'll and give all you a deep then, dark secret. When when I partnered with Dan on the Titans event, yeah. it was it was good. I went I went to wherever he is in Buttfuck, Ohio. Is that where it is? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I went to yeah. I went to Buttfuck, Ohio. I went to his house. It was snowing. It was like gloomy. That's Had your sales like You don't need to go to Buttfuck, Ohio. To, right. Uh, experience. Yeah. <laughs> but I spent a glorious day with him. I mean, it was a ten- we, we were yeah. one-on-one all day yeah. mapping the whole thing out. One of the best experiences I ever had in my career, just spending time with him like that. But then... And I said, okay, Dan, you're the Shamu, you know, you'll be the key attraction. And the irony was that when I had him and I had Jay Abraham and I had Joe Sugarman, I had Perry, and it's all of a sudden um, Gary Bensavenga comes out of the woodwork and he says, oh, Brian, I'm retired and I'm never going to speak again except I want to speak. And so all of a sudden my Shamu changed immediately. And if I had partnered with Gary Bensavenga, he wouldn't have taken such a big percentage. So the Shamus and Shamus are not universal. Everybody has their own Shamus. But I knew, I thought I, when I had Kennedy and Jay Abraham, most people my age and my generation kind of source, everybody will source their marketing career to one of those two guys, mm-hmm. usually. Mm-hmm. Usually. There, there are exceptions. Mm-hmm. But now you've got a whole other generation. You know, you've got Jeff Walker and you've got, you know, all kinds of people that you. You know, so there's so many people now that can trace their origin in marketing. So that's why I went to the speakers first. You know, who would I want? But as long as they need to be OGs, at, at least with some sprinkling in, I mean, I want to have a female copywriters panel, you know, because we didn't have that at the first event. So Kim and Carlene Cole and, you know, Marcel Allison and a bunch of other female copywriters could be a wonderful, you know, addition to this event. There's a lot of things we could do, obviously, but... You know, I don't think so. He's like, and I, and I made up, I made up, I swore I would never ask him to speak again. I could ask. At, you could ask. But no, that was before Titans. No, before, because I was at Consumer Health Summit. You were there, and you were there when he took me aside and he said he wanted to speak, and people saw me crying in the corner at Consumer Health Summit because Gary said he wanted to speak. Like he was, you, you know, and I said, no, you can't, Gary. You already told me you don't want to speak anymore. No, I didn't say that. Yeah, the red shirt, that presentation, it was blow-away speech, as you might expect from Gary. So, I mean, if I could get Gary, I would, yeah, I guess I have to ask him. <laughs> I'll ask him. Got to make it a hybrid event, obviously. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Barry and Blue producing. Yeah. All right, well, did you, did you any other questions? I, I, your, your car, I think, just, just uh, I, I buzzed bet, me. I bet. Fabrigneris could put together like a animated Chat GPT powered Gary Halbert. Yeah, yeah. It'll, it'll be on Zoom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We could have a Gary Halbert, you know, group. We could have Kevin, Joe, and John Carlton. You know, Gary Halbert re, you know, reincarnated or something. Can I ask a question? Yeah. Who's the audience for this thing? I, I would we're say, still, I mean, we're all ten years older. There's this whole other slot of people. Well, according to Gabe, 
and he's a lot younger, he's saying that, the, that his generation, once they realized there was a generation that, that, that founded this industry, and some of them are still alive. I, that's a good theory. Try it out. I think right. they're in another yeah. world. By the way, there's a lot of great young marketers out there. There are. Oh, absolutely. They figured this out without us. That's true. I mean, honestly, because they, they, yeah. they, they, you know, they're making money. They're looking at the, the stats. They know how to market. The YouTube kids, the, the good ones, yeah, no, those I agree. guys are hardcore direct marketers, and they learned it on their own. Mm, the best ones, the best ones. You know, even like Ryan Levesque, who's a bit well, younger. No, but, I'm not talking about Ryan. You know, you, you know about younger than that. The guys, okay. No, the guys that are doing you know 100 million views a year. Uh, Mr. B. Yeah. Mr. B. Yeah. I mean, they spent. They'll spend a day on their what's, what's that thing? The, this, the thumbnail, and they'll test hundreds of. I mean, they're they are rocket scientists. These kids are good, and they don't know anything about us. And maybe they don't need to. Maybe. Are they, are they really direct marketers, though, or are they content suppliers? Direct marketing is you find a market, you put something in front of them, you get them to respond. That's direct marketing. And you they're measure as, it. They're as, and you monetize it. They're I think a lot of them, though, given the fact, I think there's a lot of non-statistical significance in their oh, business. I've talked to some of them, looked at what they're doing. They're, none of it's accidental. I used the, to think it was. I thought these lucky kids, how they're doing so well. No, I'm not saying they're lucky. Yeah. They're just going to go out of business at some what, point. What if... It, what if it's the OGs and the NGs? The well, new, yeah, the na- if you new could gangsters. pull that together, that would be great. I think we could pull that together. I was just going to say, Brian, like... The convergence of titles. But real, mm. real yeah. NGs. The real kids. Yeah, no, I, I, I had yeah. already... Not our, not our friends. I like that. Yeah. Not the people we already know. No, but I the like people that. we already We're know deserve to be there. No, I, 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 I would disagree with that. I think... But I he's think, saying who the NGs are. Oh, who the NGs are, yes. NGs. Yes. Yeah, the OGs are obvious, but I mean, right, right. The good NGs, I mean, they're and that's why I, I, again so, I started with speakers because there's a lot of imposters. They're so busy running their businesses and making money, they're not going to seminars, they're not teaching stuff. I mean, a lot of them are. A lot of them have courses now, and yeah, I we have to really weed them out because yeah. But realize there's a, yes. there's a bunch of them. I agree. We don't know who they are, and, and I'm amazed when I come across them occasionally. I'm like, wow, this guy's. Which, and if they're more unknown, the more unknown, the people we get for Accelerator, the more unknown they are, the better a speaker they are, which talks to anybody who wants to be a speaker, I want to be a guru. I'm going to be on, you know, I'm going to be at Brian's Mastermind. Well, no. You know, I'd like to get you, you know, Sam Woods is kind of in that category. You know, you're known in the copywriting world, but, you know, no, you are. And, and, but you're not a, considered a guru, but I think, and you don't want to be, and that's usually the best people. If they're doing the work, they got to be doing the work, and he's doing the work. And I, I would like not that. tell him anyone who's going to come. I would just come up with a really powerful list of results and things that people will get, and um, you know, just make it really like Joe Sugarman before. You know, he never showed what was beyond the right. sunglasses. It was a mystery. So, making a mysterious event, you know, you have enough relationships where you can call on you know some very high level people, uh, and don't throw it together. Just literally say that you're going to. Show up here, and you're going to get this, this, and this. And of course, if you want to just go where the attention is, freaking don't like because there's so many markers that are selling bullshit AI. A book I would recommend: read uh, "Scary Smart." Okay, it's about AI. Yeah. It's uh, the future of artificial intelligence. It was written a couple years ago, but it was uh, from the guy that ran Google X. Brilliant book. Okay. Um, and um, 
basically, you know, just have some really killer stuff that's happening. Because the world's going to be a year from now. Different world. Completely. Yes. It, it'll be, you know, I mean, it'll be... <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I mean, this, this literally is going to be the fast. And again, I mean, I, I think that will happen. I'm not Nostradamus or anything, but it, I think if you just see what's happening right yeah, now, no, it's, it's going to be insane. I mean, and the political environment is going to be a shit show because of AI. You think you've seen crazy stuff right now. All the fakes, every it's been completely different. So really, I'm play up the in-person connection. No, the in-person. No, stuff I mean with that's the me. evil side, yeah. and there's going to be the good side and the evil side, mm-hmm. the good and evil of Titans. Yeah. Did you want to say something, Jeremy? No. I just wanted to agree with Ken. I've done a kind of a deep dive over the past two or three weeks into YouTube because it's a, just been a blind spot for me for years, and I wanted to learn more about it. And it's just it blows my mind how much these people know yes. about everything that I never even knew was a thing. Like, I'm trying to watch what they're doing and understand it and learn it, and these are brilliant people that have hundreds of millions of people following them and audiences, and it's like, I never, you know, in 10 years of direct response marketing, it's nothing that I ever even thought about as far as the way that they approach that. So the other thing is that, agreeing with Joe, is that trying to look into a crystal ball and decide right now what's going to be good for September of 2024 is like we're at this convergence right now with AI and with, and with video and with new marketing. It's going to be really difficult to predict what's going to be Well, the only thing we have to predict is getting, getting space. So we probably have to get right, the hotel. Right. There you go, yeah. That, but after that, we can decide more closer to the last minute. Yeah, you, they, gotta, they, they have to go. Your car is here. And I don't want you to miss your flight. Okay. Okay. Perry. Thank you, Brian. Thank you. That Appreciate was, it. That was awesome. <laughs> Kyler, take care. Thanks for being here. Appreciate you. Okay. Okay. Until next time, this is the Evolution 2.0 podcast, bridging science, technology, business, and the big questions. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe on iTunes or on your preferred player. If you like the show, rate us on iTunes. Join our email list and social media at CosmicFingerprints.com.